Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, David Solomon will join us to discuss the seven deadly sins. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. term sin these days is one of those that have an ambiguous tone, but how did Western culture arrive at it, and what is the present-day concept of it? Joining us today to shed some light on this issue is Professor David Solomon. Dr. Solomon is the Director of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity at Christopher Newport University. has published scholarly and popular works, including An Introduction to the Glossa Ordinaria as Medieval Hypertext, and has penned the new book, The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Era. Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. It is certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've penned here, The Seven Deadly Sins, where you really take the history of sin and how it's influenced the modern era. I'm curious why you decided to write the book. I've always been interested in the topic. I was raised a Jew in the Bronx. And I've always been interested in religion in some shape or form. And as I grew older and more intellectually mature, became really interested in all aspects dealing with spirituality. And so one of the things that I was really curious about is the ways in which we have adjusted our concept of what it means to sin in our culture from the Middle Ages up until now and how it has changed as we've moved from a primarily religious culture to a much more secular culture. Particular to the United States, or do you think it's worldwide, the the sort of changes in in Western culture, Europe and U.S.? It's pretty universal when it comes to the West. The East is a a different ballgame. So so I really do focus in the book on how it has affected the West in Western Europe and the U.S., essentially. Is it just that sin has become more loosely defined, a little bit more morally ambiguous, or is it more specific change than that? Well, I think it's as we have progressed over the the last few centuries and moved further and further away from being a a society and a culture dominated by religious dogma and organized religion, in particular, of course, the the dominance of the Catholic Church, and moved more into a secular society, the meaning of what it means to sin has really shifted. And it has moved from being defined in, in a largely theological context being defined in a more philosophical and legal context. Do you think it's had deleterious effects on society or a a change in society views what it is to sin? Well, I I think in particular as the 20th century progressed and now we're into the 21st, I do think that the effects of technology and the effects of increasing and ever fast-growing science has really affected the way in which we look at this topic. The fact that we can do so many things today doesn't necessarily mean that we should be doing them. And as a culture, I think we really need to re-examine some of those those issues. And so as an example, we've been talking about self-driving cars for several decades. 
now it seems to be coming to a, a reality. But we really haven't figured out yet as a culture and whether or not we really need that, what it means and what the effects are. I find it interesting that a local lawyer here in Virginia, where I live, is already running ads about the fact that we're going to have these self-driving cars and he's already working on cases to litigate when people get into accidents, can get out of it because they can say they weren't driving, it was the car. The interconnectedness of things makes it a lot more difficult to arrive at consensus on what sin is. Part of the issue is when you had the church, it was this top-down edict, this is sin, but now how do we define it? Absolutely. And in the book, The Seven Deadly Sins, I pretty much prescribe to a definition that's very loose that was given by the, the psychiatrist Carl Menninger in his book in 1973. He wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin, and he defined sin very simply. He said it was a behavior that violates the moral code or the individual conscience, or both. It really doesn't have anything to do with religion per se. It's more about issues related to morality. Given that morality now is, well, again, more loosely defined as somewhat ambiguous, then everyone's definition of sin is somewhat different now. That's certainly dangerous. It gets us into a, a kind of a moral relativism where, you know, no one can be wrong because everyone must be right. Um, and I'm not arguing for any kind of absolutes Really what I'm arguing for in the book is that we take a pause here and really examine what it is that we're doing, not only to each other, but in fact to the planet. A lot of what's going on with the, the climate crisis debate involves issues that relate to these seven deadly sins, primarily pride. The fact that human beings have thought for so long that they are so darn important and the center of everything that everything else is beside the point. And so we, how we affect the planet is, is second to how we feel about things. I find it really interesting. I, I just bought a new car uh, last month, and it has a feature in it that I had not seen before. It has an auto stop start feature. When I come to a stop at a traffic light, the engine basically shuts down. And then as soon as I take my foot off the brake, it starts back up again. And so I called the dealer because I said, you know, I'm a little confused about this. I said, is it really saving me money on gas? His answer was really interesting. He said, it's not so much about saving money on gas. It's that it reduces emissions when you're idling. And I thought to myself when I hung up the phone, wow, we're finally starting to decide on something other than us. We're, we're concerned about what happens in the world and not just how it affects our pocketbook. I mean, if you sort of delve down into what motivated that decision, one might think, well, it probably benefited someone along the line. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't have been implemented. Sadly, we tend to think in those terms, right? We think that it must have affected somebody in, in their wallet because it must be a cost-saving things or they wouldn't do it because we doubt the feeling and the intention behind any action that doesn't seem to be motivated by greed. In your book, you really delve into each of the classic seven deadly sins, pride, lust, anger, etc., tracing the history of all of these, taking a, a broad view of it. Have all of these concepts of sin evolved in the same way, or are there some that differed in terms of how they've evolved from the medieval ages until now? Certainly there are differences. For example, I mean, the sin of pride, which is, which is usually listed as the first one, is a really interesting example of that. Because we don't think about pride today as being even sinful. We tell people to have pride in themselves. We tell kids all the time, be proud of yourself. And that's, that's a positive thing. And it is. And I think part of the point about these sins is that each of the behaviors that are involved, whether it's pride or greed or lust, in and of themselves is not necessarily sinful. 
it's when they are performed in excess that it becomes a problem. And so it's not that we necessarily shouldn't feel feelings of lust towards our spouse or towards our lover. It's that when it becomes a feeling of in excess that it becomes a problem. I mean, without lust, we arguably wouldn't exist because I can love somebody and it not have anything to do with sexuality. And lust is about excessive feelings of, of sexual desire, not just feelings of sexual desire, but excessive. How were these viewed in the Middle Ages? I mean, certainly they were sins that were to be avoided, but oftentimes things that the church deemed would counter to what they wanted or to control the populace in some ways, tamping down some of these behaviors. Absolutely. I mean, so much of what goes on when we're talking about the medieval church has to deal with issues of power and authority and having control over people's behavior, no doubt. And I guess that's one of the things that many traditional religious folks having so much trouble with today is that that power seems to have been dissolved largely. And instead that the responsibility for that and the authority has shifted to government and and a legal system, which is rife with loopholes and ways of getting out of behavior. So much of this comes down to, as I described in the book, issues of how we look at responsibility and personal responsibility. Largely, we don't take responsibility for our actions. My car is a good example. I mean, you know, without that auto stop start, I'm not really thinking about how the environment is affected. I'm thinking about how it's affecting me at the gas pump. But every time it, it shuts down now, when I'm at a stoplight, I think for a second about the fact that I'm, I'm helping to save the planet in some small way. Um, so I think a lot of this is about how we have responsibility, who we have responsibility to. And I think the shift which occurred is the shift from having responsibility to a divinity and a divine being to having responsibility to each other. So much of our legislative system is in some ways built on these theological concepts, some ways legislated sin. Is that maybe a source of conflict in terms of codify sin in some kind of legal system, people not being satisfied with it reaching the level of the morality and concepts of sin that they want to have embodied there? Well, one of the issues there is that, of course, not all legal behavior is necessarily ethical. Not all ethical behavior is necessarily legal. Um, and so we have that constant kind of conflict. You know, it might be okay and legal for me to do something, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily ethical and vice versa. I'm, I'm thinking of folks who for, for decades have been arguing for the legalization of marijuana and arguing that that's not, that shouldn't be something which is illegal. And they felt that it was ethical to use marijuana, even though it was illegal. And now we're seeing a shift there. You go through the history of all these, the different sins. Were any uh, fascinating to you than others? I think probably the most fascinating of all of them to me was probably avarice, which is greed, and seeing the ways in which that has played out, because it has become such a dominant issue in our culture. For those in the audience who are old enough to remember the movie Wall Street in the 80s, and Michael Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko saying, greed is good. And there was a whole generation that really bought into that. And it ended up with a, a tremendous economic disaster in 2008 and a lot of people going to jail. So quite interesting the way that that has played itself out. And I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting that some of the wealthiest people in the world right now are also involved in a project where they are actually giving away a lot of their money 
to philanthropic organizations. And I'm thinking about people like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and the like. And so I think there has been a pretty fundamental shift in the way that people look at, at greed and think about the way that we use our money. But if I had lots of money, which I, I don't as a college professor and never will, um, if I had lots of money, you know, what, what would I do with it? I mean, yeah, I would like to pay off my debts and have some nice things. But a lot of the time, I, I don't understand the need to spend extravagantly and have extravagant things. I recently have become intrigued with watching the Mecham Auto Auctions on cable TV, where people are spending $300,000 for a car, which I assume in most cases is going to sit in a garage and be a display piece. I don't understand that necessarily. I get nostalgia. I understand that piece of it. But when we're talking about people, so many people in our, in our world who are suffering, and if you have the ability to help them by using the money for that, it just, that just seems like a, a better way to go for me. And certainly in the middle of the, the pandemic that we're in and with the economic situation, the way that it is, and so many people out of work, we've adopted the, the metaphor now. We don't talk about people being hungry anymore. We talk about food insecurity. And I think that it's an interesting phrase because it, it largely takes a lot of the guilt and the responsibility off of us as a society because hunger sounds so horrible. But to say that people are food insecure is a very soft way of describing something which is really horrible. Um, and, I, and I think that we have a responsibility. Again, I'm going back to responsibility. We have a responsibility to take care of each other, whatever form that may mean. And whether that means that we end up being like uh, strangers in a strange land from the, the title of your great show comes from or not. I mean, we need to take care of each other or we are going to fail. Uh, I think it was Attenborough, the naturist, a couple of years ago who had said that unless we started taking care of the climate, we were going to be doomed as, as a species. And that seems very true. And a lot of that is tied into our behavior and the ways in which we think of what it means to sin, what it means to perform these acts, which are detrimental not only to ourselves, but to others. What do you think then are the sources, the conversations that are trying to broach these issues of what we now think of as sin? Do you think these conversations are being had? And do you think we're arriving at a sense of how we achieve responsibility for these other parts of our nature? I, I mean, I like to think that they're, that they're changing. I like to think the conversation is being had. I think that it is being had on college campuses. I think it is being had in much more of the media, largely due to the fact that there are so many excellent podcasts such as yours where topics like this are being discussed. We see more and more books being published on topics related to this. And so I, I like to think that it's being discussed. My fear is that it's not being discussed by the people who are, have the power to make the changes. That's my concern. And so when it comes down to looking at the folks who have the, the power to actually affect change, and largely that in the United States means looking at the government, looking at elected officials, I'm real concerned that they're not thinking about this. They are still hung up on bottom line and just looking at budget. Tricky issue, especially in this political climate. It absolutely is. I'm hoping that it's going to, to change, of course. 
but we'll see. I mean, it's it's going to be a, a rocky road for the next few years here for a whole variety of reasons, least of which is COVID that we're dealing with and, and coming out of this just been tremendously stressful for so many people. If maybe you have some final words regarding the book, The Seven Deadly Sins, and any closing words you might want to add uh, regarding uh, the whole history of sin. Yeah, I mean, the book really does cover the history of sin, but it it isn't a dry academic tome, I don't think. That's not what I set out to write. I really wanted to write a book that folks would relate to and understand and and be able to, to think and talk about. So a lot of the book is very personal, and it isn't just a, a scholarly work. And so I would hope that folks would be able to look at it in that context. I use a lot of the writers from the early 20th century. My two favorites to use are D.H. Lawrence and Paul Valéry, both of whom were talking about a situation in the West post-World War I. And much of what they wrote about at that time is still incredibly applicable and appropriate today in a rather startling way. It's, it's one of those things about history repeating itself. We were just talking with Dr. David Solomon. He is the author of the new book, The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Era. Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.